Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we will finish our coverage of Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, the epilogue, coda, and author's note, as well as our reaction to the book. Let's start the show! In the epilogue, Susanna finds herself in New York City, at least a New York City, where she meets Eddie Torin and his brother Jake. King will not tell us that they lived happily ever after, but will tell us there was happiness and they did live. The coda takes us back to Midworld, where King warns us not to continue reading. If you do, you see Roland at the Dark Tower at sunset. Rising through the tower, he passes through moments of his life. At the top, there is a final door labeled Roland. He opens it and is pulled through to the edge of the Mohane Desert, and the story ends where it begins. The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. Ooh, I got goosebumps. Ooh. We have completed our journey to the Dark Tower, Jay. We have yes. made it through eight books, endless That's amounts right. of pages, mm-hmm. and have started where we began. Yes, it's time to do the dance of the Kan no Rei. Drop the beat. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Roland's doing a dance, though. <laughs> He's achieved the mission of his life. Uh, I don't know if he's so happy about it. (laughs) No, no, no. But before we get to Roland, we start with Susanna in New York, or at least a New York. It might not be the same New York she came from. It might not be the New York you and I are in. Uh, In our world, it might not be the same New York at all. But there is a New York there. And Susanna maybe finds happiness of a sort, do you think? Um, I think that that's really what we're supposed to take away from this, in my opinion, that Susanna makes a decision to follow the path of love versus the path of the gun, and that takes her back to her world where she gets to meet A. Eddie and A. Jake and um, live happily, if not happily ever after. Yeah. I mean, Susanna makes a really big decision before she reaches this moment, and that is to abandon Roland and abandon the quest for the tower. Because for her, love is more important than the tower. Love is more important than being a gunslinger. And that's why, as you say, love conquers the gun, I guess. Because when she brings the gun through, Roland's gun, the ancient gun, the gun of Arthur Eld, turns into like this rusted, useless thing that would never function. And it becomes kind of like almost a mockery of what the actual gun was. And it's not that she even keeps it as a remembrance or a keepsake or something of value. She literally just throws it out in the trash. Yeah. Like it's it 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 has no meaning whatsoever. It's not the same gun and she's really, you know, pushing it to the side and and really going for love instead of the gun in in the most dramatic way. And As she does that, she realizes that she is going to forget what had happened to her, that she can already feel that her experience is growing hazy in her mind. She remembers it at the moment, but she can already see that the details are getting foggy and that she'll be able to explain some of it to this Eddie, to this Jake, but not all of it. And it doesn't make her sad necessarily. In fact, when she meets Eddie, Eddie Torin now, and they recognize each other, she has this revelation that it occurs to her that he is going to kiss her again for the first time and sleep with her again for the first time and fall in love with her again for the first time because those things have already happened. You know, so she already knows that, hey, this is sort of a unique position I'm in. I know that I did all these things once with this man or a version of this man. and. Mm-hmm. That first time of love, which we've hopefully all been through, there's a certain excitement to that, that 
you really never gain, even if you still love your partner as much as you always have. You don't always have those feelings of, hey, this is our, our, our first time of doing something. Right. And, and Suzanne is in this unique position where she gets to do all of that again and experience again. And she realizes how beautiful that is to her because she gets to experience all this love again. And that brings her joy as she realizes as she's going through this cycle of Ka on the wheel, she gets to to do that. And even though she's losing those memories of what happened to her in Midworld and her relationship with Roland and all the things that she went through, um, what she is gaining is this new experience of trying everything again. Yeah. Um, as I was reading through this the first time, I was getting more and more frustrated with the choices that King was making, that King was setting up Susanna to forget, that Susanna was going to lose the memory and all the things that the experiences, good and bad, brought to her. And so basically the fruit of her life, of her struggles, of her trials, were going to be wiped away. And the best part of that for her was always her connection to Eddie. And even the loss of Eddie was something that was meaningful to her. And to have these things stripped from her, I felt as almost like a kind of theft. And mm. I saw it as more than sad. I saw it as almost wasteful. And to paraphrase something that King said, I think in Christine, you know, like if you go through this crucible of, of life, you know, you come out a little bit charred, but you're stronger for it. You're, a, you know, a, a more refined, stronger metal. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, Susanna suffered, but she also got to experience really great moments of happiness. And she also went from the woman she was when she was drawn into Roland's world to becoming a full-fledged gunslinger. So she gained a family, she gained a status of a gunslinger, and she gained a love of a lifetime. And I felt like she was losing that. Those things were being stripped from her. And it wasn't until you and I chatted about it that I realized that that might be true, but this new opportunity that she gets is far greater than anything she could have tried to hold on to if she had stayed with Roland and gone to the tower. Or at least I think that's what King is trying to tell us. Yeah, I think so. I think he's putting, and it may be trite to say that, but I think he's putting love ahead of violence in the way of the gun. There's been enough of that in the section before this and as well in this epilogue, I think, that at least for this character, that's what we're supposed to take away, that um, that was more important to her, and it it leads to what will be a happy life of some sort. Mm -hmm. He promises us it's not necessarily happily ever after, but it is happiness, and they're going to live a life, and we're not going to know what it is necessarily because they sort of walk off into the distance, but it's 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 the right choice for them, and it distinctly contrasts with what comes next, I think. Yes. In fact, I almost think it's a mirror image of what happens with Roland. Mm. So... As we go into the coda, and we'll we'll talk about King's piece in a minute, but I just j just to connect Susanna to Roland. So Susanna has gone to the end of her story, and she starts to forget what happened to her, and she realizes that there's going to be joy in this because she'll experience everything again. And when Roland goes through the door, the same thing happens to him. He is going to forget the last what is almost a calendar year as far as the time that we've spent with them mm -hmm. together. He is going to lose all of that and forget all of that and not remember Eddie, not remember Jake, not remember Susanna, not remember this experience from book one through book seven. And he's going to forget all that and have to repeat things and do things again for the first time. Just like Susanna is doing things for the first time, he's going to have to repeat the going through the desert meeting the man in black, drawing the three, going through all of that again. And he sees the horror in that. Yes. For him, it is beyond anything he could have imagined. And he is just horrified by what's happening and, and yells that it, it, he does not want, want it to happen as he gets pulled through this door. And I do see it as a mirror image. And that, in my mind, is because Roland has thrown aside or has not thrown aside his guns and has continued along that path, that he's continued with his obsession beyond where he needed to. We were told that once 
they saved King and once they saved the beams, that really his mission was done, that the tower would stand, the beams would rebuild, and the universe was saved, and he could have stopped there. But whether it be pride or arrogance or stubbornness, he would not end that. And so he gets to do what Susanna does, but in a much more horrific way. Right. Susanna gets an opportunity to happiness and joy and love, and Roland is doomed. Doomed! (laughs) (laughs) To repeat it all over again and again and again, and that this is perhaps something that he's done over and over again, which now that we've gotten to the end, we realize that King has sprinkled this throughout the series, that there has been many references to Ka being a wheel and things being cyclical and things happening over and over and the man in black even hints at it in the revised edition of the gunslinger yes and and now we know what that was all leading up to yeah that you are closer than you've ever been to the tower right now yes he he just walked through it just walked through it (laughs) so as i said earlier king directly addresses the reader which he's done occasionally throughout the series but really none so much as at the beginning of the coda, where he basically tells you, hey, this is what you wanted, right? You there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking at you. You're the one. You don't care about the journey. You just want to find out what happens, aren't you? And here's what's going to happen. And are you sure you want to know? Because you're probably going to be disappointed. And he's sort of backing away from what, you know, what a writer would normally say. But he's like, hey, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you what I see and what I have to tell you. But I suggest you stop now before you read any further, because there's a good chance you're going to be disappointed or you're not going to like what's happened. And don't blame me. This is this is just how it goes. And I hope you came to hear the tale and not just munch your way through the pages to the ending, which you and I have not. We've been very good about reading little chunks at a time Mm -hmm. and I've not read through to the end. So um, and we get there. I mean, what's King doing here besides setting our expectations and setting the bar low? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, as you say, like he's he's spoken directly to us before, um, you know, like like he's broken the fourth wall in that way. But here, he's not just breaking the fourth wall. He's like wrapping his knuckles on the other side of the glass of the TV screen, you know, like like seriously, pay attention. I'm talking to you, you know. Don't don't read anymore. You finished the story. Roland has finished the story. The story is done. That's all you need to know. Just walk away now, and. I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he's putting enough out there, just like Roland. Roland finished his his mission, but still kept going. We finished the story, but we kept going. Yep. Like we we went with Roland, and where we didn't need to go, we went further than we needed to, just like Roland did. So maybe that's what he's he's kind of working towards. Yeah, yeah. He's he he's definitely letting us know, like. Hey, this is this is where it's at, guys. Like, this is the ending. And the ironic thing is it's the ending, but it's not the ending, right? Because it's mm-hmm. a circle, there is no end. It's just, it's cyclical. Like, I think, you know, those last couple pages are basically a rewrite of the first few pages of The Gunslinger. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you're, and I think you've probably talked to people. I know we've got listeners who they finish this series and they immediately go and pick it up again and they've read through it over and over again. So this is my first time through and I've read it once, but you've read it before and and you're through it again. We know of people who've gone through it multiple times. And I, I I saw somebody online who says, yeah, I re I reread this book, this series every year. I'm like, wow. So it, it never ends for you either. It just continues in a cycle. And King is sort of aware of that, but at the same time he's saying, Hey, is this ending heartless? Because he says endings are heartless. He says that um, an ending is a closed door that no man can open. Endings are heartless. Ending is just another word for goodbye. And it seems like King's not able to say goodbye here. Yeah. And if he's asking us that question, like, do we think this ending is heartless? My answer is no, I don't think so. And I don't think so because Susanna is given a, a way to find happiness and Roland is given a chance at a different conclusion next time, perhaps even redemption, mm. which is the, the voice that he hears. If it's the, the voice of the beam or the voice of the tower as Roland is, is pushed through that final door and 
he resumes his journey, he resumes the cycle. The voice says, you may perhaps even find redemption. Yeah. And so I think that that makes this a kind of, it's not as grim as it could be, I suppose. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> say it's happy for Roland, but it's it's also not heartless for those reasons. Yeah, and I, I to my point earlier, I don't think it's heartless necessary because one when I was reading it, and I will say that at some point bef- years ago, this was spoiled for me that I knew sort of what was going to happen to Roland. I didn't know all the exact pieces, but um, I I've sort of known that he was going to repeat the cycle. Um, and to that point, because the story doesn't end, it's not heartless because it's not an ending. It's it's a resumption and potential redemption, as you said. What about the fact that at various points throughout the books, other people have either questioned Susanna or the others or accused Roland directly of not having a plan beyond get to the tower. Just get there, and then what? Yep. And there was never any then what, right? Um, and it seems like maybe King never thought about the then what or purposely didn't include the then what because he saw some part of this in the down the road in the story and realized that there is no then what. There's just more of what came before. Yep. So it's like Roland has no plan besides walking into the tower, climbing to the top. And it turns out we learn when he learns that there's nothing there except the reset button. Uh-huh. But Roland never really knew what his plan was. He's like, I just need to get there. Yeah. And no one and nothing is going to stop that. You think King was going for that or or hinted at that because... Because um, he knew all along? He knew all along or he didn't want there to be, you know, like God or somebody sitting at the top floor of the, the tower. and Yeah, I I do think that. I, I think he knew where he was going. I think it makes much more sense that Roland doesn't know what he's supposed to do when he gets there. That, you know... King had just said, like, he doesn't want you to be one of those people who ignores the journey. The journey is what's important, not the end. And to some extent, Roland was more worried about the end than the journey. And really, the journey is what got him there. So I, you know, that could be um, that he knew that there didn't need to be a plan because what could he plan for? You know, whether it was God at the top or an empty room or what is actually happening, a doorway to the beginning of of the loop. Mm -hmm. Who knows? And Roland's always been that automaton-like juggernaut where he doesn't make the intricate moment-to-moment plans. He just sets the goal and and walks and and marches towards that (laughs) goal, right? And whether it's to just get from where he's standing to the next room or from where he's standing to the tower, he figures it out on the fly. So he didn't necessarily need to know what was what came after that. He was just going to make it up as he went. And that worked just fine for him. Always has. So can we talk a little bit about this section, Jay? Sort of, we, we've talked about the beginning, King setting us up. We've talked about the end, Roland repeating everything. Um, we haven't talked about sort of that in-between piece, which has a lot of stuff that maybe doesn't work for me as well as it maybe should. Such as? Well, I'll sort of start at the end. They make a pretty big deal about this horn Mm. and the horn that Roland has now, which potentially may indicate that there is a chance for this loop to be different. That the loop, or I'm sorry, that the horn that he left on the battlefield at Jericho Hill and he didn't take the few seconds to pick it up was a mistake and that it could have be something that makes a difference. And so when he goes through the door, he has this horn and that it, he realizes that he's got this and he like, he's touching it for the first time. And he thinks back to when he got it at Jericho Hill in the, in the new loop. What am I supposed to take away from this? Like, I, I, I don't, has it been built up enough in all of the, in the rest of the books to think that, am I not remembering it closely enough because I wasn't paying attention and really, what is the horn supposed to do that is different? I don't think there's an answer to that, not in the text anyway, but I've always assumed that it was the tower that changed this detail of the horn, that it wasn't that, I don't know, his loop resets 
long after this change would have happened in his life, where he would have stooped to pick up the horn at the Battle of Jericho Hill, because he is already in the Mohane Desert. He's already chasing the man in black. So yeah, what what changed in his life from Jericho Hill to the Mohane Desert that would that having that horn would have done that would make anything after that moment different? We don't know. And I guess that's my that might be my broader question is why is the point that his loop happens where it happens as he enters the Mohane Desert right before he's going to meet the farmer at the edge of the desert? Um, I think from a literary standpoint, it's beautiful. It makes total sense. Sure. King gets to end the book right where he started the series with that wonderful line. And that's fantastic. But from a time travel loopy perspective, what's different about that point? And why are things from other parts of his life brought into the into this loop? Um, I was looking this afternoon at the Bev Vincent book, The Road to the Dark Tower, and he suggests it's almost like a deus ex machina that's brought in from outside of the loop into it, this horn that he's mm-hmm. got. And, you know, he has a much clearer idea of well, this is the point when he realizes that he can do something about the Dark Tower and he's close to the man in black, and that's why this is the point he runs into the loop. But for me, it's just sort of like, eh, from a from a tactical, here's what's actually happening. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, it would make more sense if he were, like, if the tower reset him to the Battle of Jericho Hill and there's the horn on the ground because Cuthbert has dropped it and died. And he stops to pick it up and then he does whatever he does from that point forward. But because he has the horn, because something made him think the horn was important enough to to maybe risk getting shot or killed or something just to grab it, that changes something about him that changes everything. Yeah. It takes the agency away from Roland again, right? Yeah. Like it's the tower or Gan or even King who's changed Roland's life. It's not Roland who's changed it. Right. And I think maybe that's what's bothered me, that there's not an opportunity for Roland to do something that makes a difference this time around. I mean, it could be all sorts of things, but like if it were the fact that there's something magical, like there's a sigil on the horn, just like there was on his guns, that anybody who has the horn in their possession when they enter the tower, the tower acts in a different way. Or instead of seeing the door that he, that he sees here, he it's a different door because he has the horn. Yeah. But but none of those things are expressed to us. It's just that maybe this time it'll be different because you have the horn. Yeah. So that was one of the things that sort of puzzled me about this section. Did you have any, Jay? Well, I had a few, but just continuing on the, the looping topic, I think you're you're hinting at this already, but I just wondered, does the looping even make sense, like big picture wise? You know, we've talked about how Roland has gone past the point of success to his doom. He's saved the tower without ever seeing the tower. So therefore, he can stop. He can hang up his guns and retire and go fishing or something. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever gunslingers do when they retire. Instead, he does what he does. So it left me trying to find reasons for this decision that he makes. You've said it was perhaps pride or maybe just being stubborn. But I wonder, could it have also been the malevolence of the pink wizard's glass? That was the thing that, through its magic, first exposed Roland to the tower. It's the thing that gave Roland his quite powerful obsession with the tower and the command to find the tower and go to the tower. And maybe those things were necessary from a certain point of view, but because all of these wizards' glass are also evil, they might help you, but they do it at great cost. Right. So it's like, it's a good thing for you to pursue the tower because the tower will need your help or the tower already needs your help. And you're perhaps the one person in the whole universe that could actually do the things that need to be done to help the tower. But at the same time, I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to make you so obsessed with this tower that it's basically going to make your whole life nonstop misery. Yep. And so you get to be the hero and the anti-hero at the same time. And your life's going to suck and you're going to be doomed to go through this loop because you will save the tower, but the tower will decree you unworthy. 
and send you back in yep. time or something. And, and so, but this is all me making this up. I, I like just trying to find rationales within the text that we know. Yeah, agreed. I, I mean, there's not much there. And I, to that point, I mean, maybe King doesn't want to answer this. Maybe he wants to have a little bit of mystery still. Um, and for us to think those deep, heady thoughts that we thought in book one, right? Like he, you know, if we're directly going back to book one, that's where a lot of this thought came up, right? Like it's not, it's not time, it's size. And we have this vision of the universe and Roland gets this whole vision of his life as he goes up the different floors that extend miles into the sky beyond what the tower itself looks like as he sees all these different moments. So He's hoping to blow our mind a little bit and give us something to think about as opposed to explicating everything to the nth degree. Right. So I guess another thing that I was a bit unhappy with in this section was just about everything that had to do with the Crimson King. Uh, I mean... <laughs> His eyes are sitting or floating on the balcony with uh -huh. optic nerves sticking out and just looking at Roland with this look of horror and malevolence as mm -hmm. as Roland walks through and is just like, all right, I'm going to leave those eyes alone and keep going. And yeah, so like here's just a, a little detail. I I know I often get carried away about these little nitpicks, but Roland enters the level of the tower that has a balcony where the Crimson King was trapped. Now my imagination and one of the reasons why the, the Crimson King was trapped was the magic of the tower itself. It, like, it let him walk out onto the balcony, but wouldn't let him back in, mm -hmm. right? But I also figured that this happened near the top of the tower because the tower is this magically tall edifice. But it turns out he's only on the second level of the <laughs> tower. He made it two floors up and then he's like, oh, look, what a beautiful sunset or whatever the Crimson King <laughs> thinks when he's touring the tower steps out onto the balcony with, as I guess the spirit voice of Mordred explains, <laughs> with his only gunna, the box of sneeches, and then finds himself trapped. But he's just two levels up. Like, what is that? 60 feet tops? Well, probably we, less? We know for a fact it's 38 steps because it's two sets of 19. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, yes. prob it's probably less than six. It's probably 30 feet off the ground. So, you know, the Crimson King can't just be like, hee hee, ha I'm the Crimson King. Hee hee, ha ha. I'm just going to jump off of this cliff or just jump off of this balcony. You know, like, why doesn't he do that? Um, or just tie like 20 sneeches to his robe and have them <laughs> flutter him to the ground. Like, how is that the place where he's confined? This, this very powerful, very influential, undead, crimson king who has all this magic at his disposal he's stuck 30 feet in the air on a balcony <laughs> and then of course like we talked about before like his only weapon his only means of attack and and against roland as he approaches the tower is the sneeches you know like wh who is this guy and what what <laughs> why do we even care who is this guy? Why did he steal all the Harry Potter information? And why is he <laughs> yeah, not scary? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I get this picture of the, the whole reason the eyes are floating there. The eyes in the drawing that Patrick drew were made out of blood and flowers and not just a pencil. And so he can't physically erase those with his right. eraser. And so that's why he's unable to erase those. And so I guess they still stick out there like Daffy Duck's bill when he gets erased in the Looney Tunes commercial or in mm -hmm. Looney Tunes cartoon. And it's just very cartoonish. And I'd rather we not have to think about it at all as opposed to King sort of yeah. inserting it here as well. Although it does give us an opportunity for you to do your imitation of the Crimson King. That's pretty, uh, pretty spot on, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime anyone reads a series of books, they're going to be totally think you're the the voice actor behind them. Hee 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 hee. Hee ha, I'm the Crimson King. Yeah. <laughs> Good times indeed. <laughs> hey, do you think if Patrick could draw all the rest of the Crimson King without using the, the Crimson ink that he makes from Roland's blood in the, the flower petal? Yep. Could he, after he erases the rest of him, could he just draw floating eyes that are in pencil and then erase those? Who knows? <laughs> like, you know, it's a two-step process, but eventually 
Yeah, or get them. Could, or couldn't they just burn that paper instead of erasing it? Yeah. I, think I mean, like, the, lather, rinse, repeat, right? Eventually, yeah. <laughs> the Crimson King is gone. Yeah. And how do the eyes have memories and malevolence? Like, they're not and the ability to... to mentally communicate and taunt Roland. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, all right. So the book ends. Uh, first, we get a full republishing of the Robert Browning poem. And then we get to the author's note where Stephen King directly addresses us here as the writer of the series of books, not as the King character, not as a writer, but, you know, one-on-one. Hey, guys, you've made it to the end. I know you might not be happy. And by the way, while we're here, I hate the term metafiction. It is a smarmy academic term and not at all what I was doing here. And I was like, (laughs) huh, well, okay. It seems like Jay and I have been talking about that for two or three books now. Um, I have to strongly disagree with King here. Like, I don't think he gets to make the rules on what is or what, what is not metafiction when it's pretty clear that what he's doing is metafiction. He has inserted himself into the tale and made the tale to some extent about himself and the process of writing and all of that, which are fairly standard pieces of metafiction that he's put it in. And he might not like the term, but Gosh darn it, King, that's what you're doing. And his comment also confused me because I know that King is a good writer and I know that he is an expert in the craft of writing books and he's well-educated and well-read and all this other stuff. So I have to assume that when he does something like employ metafiction or a deus ex machina, that he understands that he's doing this deliberately or that he's choosing to do this deliberately, right? If I were to write a book and it happened to have some awesome use of metafiction and I'm not a talented author or an experienced <laughs> one, be like, oh, what what a stroke of luck, right? If King does it, he did it on purpose. Yeah. So for him to do this to such a great extent and to go so far in his metafiction that we as we talked about, it kind of burst right through to the other side of whatever is beyond metafiction, and then to say, I don't like metafiction. I don't do it. Are is he just lying to himself or did he not realize that he was doing this? And I I don't think either one of those answers is satisfying. Now, for me I think it's we we talked a couple episodes ago about how uh James Joyce had said like, "Oh, I'm putting enough stuff in here that critics will be trying to figure this out for the next 100 years." And King mm-hmm. just outright does it and then says, "Hey, look what I just did here." And I sort of think that he's the same way. He's not writing for critics. He's not writing for academics. He's writing for his constant readers. His constant yeah. readers. Exactly. And so he's not trying to do something highfalutin and fancy. He's just writing a story, and the story is what he writes, and he wants you to take away from it, this is the story, this is a tale, and it just so happens I'm in it. And I think that that's part of it, one. Mm-hmm. And I think the second part is, too, I have read interviews with him where he has said that he really saw this whole writing of the Dark Tower almost as a first draft and that he would eventually go back and rewrite the whole thing. And we know he did that with some of book one, that he added material and and, and did some changes. Um, He's obviously done it with the stand, so it's not something totally new to him that he's redone work. But he has also said that if he were to rewrite it, he might not include himself in it, Mm -hmm. which... Based on the last three books, I just sort of boggles my mind how he could do that. It just seems so central to the text here. Um, And I wonder if that's part of it, too, that he's thinking like, oh, well, what you guys are calling metafiction isn't really key to the story. I was planning on taking all that out when my rewrite, so it wouldn't matter. I I, I think that those are a couple of the reasons that he may be struggling against this and potentially also trying to undercut his critics before they get a chance to to talk about metafiction as a as an idea. I guess if he if he didn't give Roland a case of bonitis <laughs> and then all of the scenes where they meet the character of King and, yes. and rescue King were excised and we only went as deep in the metafiction as like discovering a hard copy of Salem's Lot. Yes. I think that would have been a nice subtle like just a toe dipped into the waters of metafiction and move on. And maybe that's where he would have ended up if he could rewrite it, if he, if he could take it back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> uh, it's funny because you know we've noted numerous times how much we like King writing the nonfiction and when he writes about his own works. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, this one just it didn't hit me well, and I almost wish he didn't write it. And it's sort of funny because he says that too. Like he says, "Oh, people have said maybe I shouldn't write an author's note, but hey, I'm going to do it anyways." And at least it's not the one that Michael Whelan read because I'm doing a different one because he was right that I did need to do that. So um, there's two other things I wanted to point out. One is he answers our question from a couple books ago when I asked, you know, how much is this the real Stephen King and how what his life was like? And he says, ah, "I changed enough details so that." No one's going to come knocking on my door. It's a a general picture of it, not the precise stuff and some things you have to keep private. So I thought that that was nice of him to to answer my question that I had a while ago. So thank you, Stephen. Also, he talks about his retirement because, as you know, when he was writing these books, that was sort of a big issue of the moment, right? Like he was saying, I'm going to be done writing. Um, I I think maybe he said he'd have another book or two and then that was going to be it, that he was going to retire and and no more writing from, from Mr. King. And it's been what sixteen, almost sixteen years now, and he's had probably twenty books since then. Yeah, he has not stopped at all. And one of those books was another Dark Tower book. Yes, exactly. And other ones have referenced the Dark Tower, so in one yeah. way or the other. So, uh, yeah, definitely something that I think we'll talk about in our next episode about sort of King's writing as a whole and what he's trying to do with this series and what it means not only to this series but to all of his works as a whole and even to himself as a writer. Um, because I think there's obviously some strong connections between King and his real life and what's happening in these last three books, especially after he had been hit by the van and what an impact that had on his life and obviously on the writing of these books and potentially other ones. Indeed. Indeed. So that takes us to the end, Jay, of the series, but it does not take us to the end of fun stuff. No, the fun never ends, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> There's always fun stuff. And even in this short section, we were able to to dig up a bunch of fun stuff. Um, the first one is when Susanna goes into the new New York that she's in, you know, her big concern is always, who's president? Is it Ron, is that is that, that crazy Ronald Reagan guy from all those uh-huh. movies? And then he's like, no, of course not. It's Gary Hart. <laughs> there's, there's some scandal about the monkey business thing, but he took care of it, and he's been president since 1980. Yeah. And, and he's sort of stunned that she would even mention Ronald Reagan, the guy who's in those old movies. Nah, never a chance he would be. So I guess he never got to be governor of California or any of that stuff if he never got into politics, and Gary Hart moved up. I just thought it was interesting because Gary Hart's been in the news recently. There's a new movie out Yeah, um, about that whole monkey business scandal. So it's nice to see Gary's name again. Yeah, good old Gary. So I thought it was cool that King tells us in his author's note that Susanna, Eddie, and Jake are reunited in this new version of New York, and that he's sure that at some point, some canine version of Oi is going to find their way into his in, into their lives. And so I thought that was very nice for him to acknowledge it. But I think it would have also been even more impactful if they didn't have him with them or something. Like he didn't have to be in Central Park with Jake and Eddie. But if one of them said to the other, like, oh, we better get back home because we got to feed Roy. And then, you know, Suzanne would say, wait, did you say Oi? No, Roy. We 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 have a pet Yorkie named Roy. And, and then like, oh, yeah, I see what you did there, King. Yeah. I see what you did. That would have been a sweeter ending. But at least King acknowledges that Oi's going to join the, the family too. Yeah. You were disappointed when you got to the end of the Susanna chapter and Oi wasn't there, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it could have been worse. It could have been like, you know, this raccoon jumps up on uh, on Eddie's shoulder and Susanna's like, ah, and starts like hitting it with a stick or something like that. Get that rabbit thing off your shoulder. Like, no, no, this is our pet raccoon. Everybody has them. <laughs> it's oi. In this world, there are no dogs, just raccoons. Yeah. So when Susanna goes into New York, she mentions a tech corporation and that she feels that her and Eddie are going to do work for them. And I was a little bit confused by that. So. I aid the the tower and the beam have been saved. So mm-hmm. would there be a need for a tech corporation? And is there a tech corporation in every world? I sort of took it to be that maybe there would only be a tech corporation in the Keystone Earth that was doing the work. Um, but maybe not. Maybe there's tech corporations everywhere and they're all doing the work to save the beams and, and help Roland. Uh a lot of stuff there that I just didn't 
glom onto. I mean, the good news for Eddie is Susanna's probably freaking rich, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. Or or perhaps nobody in her family has ever existed on this version of Earth and she's just a stranger. Yes. But yeah, I mean, we learned from the Tech Corporation conversation that they have been battling the Crimson King and the Sombra Corporation in all these different ways, and those efforts happen on multiple versions of Earth. So if they're battling them on the ground level, they must have a presence in different versions of Earth. But I don't think it really matters. It doesn't. It doesn't. But it just calls into question, are there like multiple Susannas who are all lost their way and or what? But it, it's not worth thinking about, I know. <laughs> I really like the fact that Roland, when he was a child, had a dog named Ringo. <laughs> yes. And I started wondering, is King trying to throw some shade on Ringo Starr? Like, <laughs> like oh, I'm going to pick one of the Beatles and then say he was a dog <laughs> and it's ringo of course it's ringo <laughs> of course it's ringo king also can't help but noting that he might write more dark tower stories even as he's talking about his retirement uh -huh. like he can't help himself <laughs> and sure enough he's written one and he's hinted that he might have another one in him at least um so i mean we'll see he's got lots of places he could go there's prequel stuff you could do about roland before he meets up with uh in in the desert there's stuff about the sombra corporation the tech corporation that could be interesting i mean there's a whole real world that he started to create here that could be interesting to flesh out if he wanted to so it's just I mean it's just sort of funny how he how he set it up like hey i'm retiring but i might write some more dark tower series <laughs> Uh, I really like that when Roland reached the level of the tower that matches his present, he thinks to himself, I have reached now. Mm. And that reminded me very much of that scene in Spaceballs when they get the VHS version <laughs> of their own movie, yes. fast forward to the present, and they're like, we're in now, 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 <laughs> now. yes, now. <laughs> yeah, uh, picturing Roland like looking out, out the left balcony and seeing seeing himself and looking to the right balcony <laughs> and seeing himself. Like, oh, I got to go to the next floor. This is crazy. There's a dissertation to be uh, to be written by someone on the linkage between Spaceballs and the Dark Tower, because that's got to be the third or fourth time you've brought it up in our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's a reason that these movies are classics. <laughs> uh, there is a direct reference um, to Lord of the Rings when Stephen King talks about uh, Grey Havens, which is where tired characters go to rest. And that's where the elves go. And I think also Gandalf and Frodo as well, right? As, as the series yes. ends, as they go off to the Grey Havens. And so again, King, I think in the first book mentions that the Lord of the Rings was a influence and he brings it back around here at the end as well. Yep. This final section of the book uh, had a lot of really great writing in it, but there was one particular line that I liked a lot, which is as Roland goes through the final door, the line is, Roland of Gilead walked through the last door, the one he always sought, the one he always found. It closed gently behind him. And I thought that the gently part of it was what made this especially powerful, because Roland's act of his entire quest is concluded by a gently closing door. There's no door slam. There's no rumble of thunder. There's no earthquake. It's simply a door that closes and it does so gently. Yep. And Roland's story resumes where it began. Uh, but the, the gentle part of it, I think, was just right. And I applaud King for his writing there once again. Well, that's good. Let's leave fun stuff on a positive note with that. Yes, let's. All right. So as we like to do it when we get to the end of a book, let's talk quickly about how the book was received and, and some of the reception. So Library Thing, it has a ranking of 4.13 stars, which is the highest of all of the books in the series by Library Thing readers. And on Goodreads, it has a ranking of 4.28 stars which is also the highest of all the books. So uh, readers who, again, this is self-identified doing rankings, um, seem to like this book the best out of all of them. 
Um, and we'll see where Jay and I think it fits in a little bit. But uh, interesting that readers like this one the best, uh, the conclusion. You think that's like recency bias? It's the last one I read, so it's the best. Possibly. I do think that people just like a conclusion of something, right? Like, mm. like, hey, it's the end and so wraps everything up. And maybe people think, hey, it wraps everything up nicely and how I expected. And so that could be. Um, who knows? Uh, I don't think you have recency bias when it comes to this book. Nope. As we'll find out soon. So as you know, I pull reviews from all over the place and there's a database I use called Novelist Plus that uh, collects some of these reviews. And I thought it was funny because they had the book description of, of the Dark Tower and it says, the final installment in the epic series completes the quest of Roland Deschain, who works to outmaneuver the increasingly desperate acts of his adversaries and confronts losses within his circle of companions, which is sort of dry and really sort of misses a lot of the point of the book, I think. Yeah, <laughs> big time. Even more fun is the theme they put for this book, which is Vengeance is Mine. And I have no idea where they got that as the theme for this book because the yeah, only that is one... so far off. Nobody gets vengeance in this book. No, the only one seeking potentially vengeance is Mordred, and he obviously doesn't get it. So I have no idea where that theme came from, but whatever the case. Um, so a couple of reviews. Uh, one review from Booklist says, despite plenty of action and quite a few unforeseen bombshells, this massive conclusion may strike some as drawn out. Uh, yes. Mm. King leans on his talent for covering 30 seconds of action and say 30 pages rather too often. But what the vast elusive to several other King's books and plenty of others tale is all about is more teasingly evident than ever before. It is a fable, possibly theological, of creativity among indubitably other things. And I think I'd have to agree that that creativity piece is potentially what this is about. And we'll talk a little bit about that next episode as we talk about the series as a whole. But this idea that the series might ultimately be about creativity and writing, I think, is a is a key theme that this reviewer pulled out. Writing and more broadly, storytelling. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Publisher Weekly had a, a short piece. Um, and just said, those who have faithfully journeyed alongside Roland, Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi ever since will find their loyalty toward their series creator richly rewarded. So Publisher Weekly with a positive review. Nice of them to include Oi. Yes, of course. You would not expect otherwise. The Library Journal said, though this book's publication is a bittersweet event for the myriad faithful fans, they will not be disappointed. Characters who by now seem like friends and family reach their destinies in a way that resonates with the ancient fundamentals of storytelling. The series is a classic, certain to grow in readership, and as folks of Midworld would say, King has earned many long days and pleasant nights. All right. He earned them. So, Kirkus was not quite as happy. Um, for some fans, there will be bad news when kings meet at the Dark Tower and the Horror Meister shunts aside the world-bursting galactic climax expected for a more formulaic end. Even King himself apologizes for falling short. Multi-dimensional fantasy leaps and grisly horror balance long, ho-hum stretches that calm the waters between the tsunamis. Big literary laurels or hack masterpiece? Oil paintings and page drawings by Michael Whelan help, but what can you say when your lead character is less expressive than Audie Murphy? Not Clint Eastwood as King Hints, and far less compelling than Frodo or Harry Potter. So I thought this was interesting. Um, obviously, Kirkus was not a fan here. But the fact that they mentioned Harry Potter, and I wonder if to some extent that series, I mean, literally had an impact on King and sort of overshadowed. I mean, it became such a huge publishing event in the 90s and early 2000s. And King was obviously... Oh, he loves the series. He yeah. loves the series and is a huge fan. And so many people were fans of that book, all ages. Um, and still to this day, it sort of overshadows, you know, like King was, you know, subconsciously or not making these connections between the Lord of the Rings and his own book and putting his own twist on it. And then there's this other series of books that just sort of has become the standard bearer of fantasy after Lord of the Rings. I think there's no doubt about it that Harry Potter is seen that way. Um, and is possibly more beloved than Lord of the Rings amongst a broader audience. Not one mention of Game of Thrones, though. No, interesting. I don't think King. I mean, King knows Martin. They've they've had they've done simultaneous TV appearances and interviewed each other. So it's not like King is unaware of Martin's work, right? But it clearly has not had the impact on King's imagination that 
certainly not what Lord of the Rings has done and definitely not Harry Potter. Yeah. And then finally, the New York Times in a review that was titled Pulp Metafiction, and I think this review really sort of hits on the head a lot of what I think, um, with a little more preparation, the Dark Tower might have turned out better. By introducing an element of metafiction, King placed himself at the center of the series and instantly became its most believable element. As for Roland and his quartet, they continued their reality-bending trip in this new book, but it's harder to care about them. You can see the puppet strings and the suspense sinks to the level of a B-horror film. Which character is going to get killed first? In the end, King doesn't have the writerly finesse for these sort of games, and the voices let him down. I don't agree with that. Uh, if we've learned anything about King by the close of this series, it's that he's terrified of endings, which is a fair, I mean, we've talked before and um, when it comes to King and endings, so that's not a surprise. Yeah. But, you know, I think really that first line that I said is a little bit of what I think with a little more preparation, the Dark Tower might have turned out better. Um, and there is a distinct difference, I think, in the series between books four and book five. Um, Obviously, a lot changed in King's life, and you know, five, six, and seven were written in a mad rush, and I think that had a big impact on those books. And the preparation thing is a fair point. Like, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that, but we have mentioned numerous times how things don't come together how we think they might have and should have done, um, and that can be seen as both positive and negative. But uh, I think it's worth pointing out for sure. All right. So, Jay, your thoughts on the book and our rankings. Um, you have consistently had book one as your favorite book. Will you be like the readers of Goodreads and Library Thing and bump seven to the top of your list, knocking one off its perch? No. Oh, shocker. I'm yeah. shocked. I'm sure nobody is surprised that I still think one is the best of the series. Um, and in fact, Seven comes in at uh, just ahead of book six for me, as and six is dead last. So my rankings today after finishing book seven are book one, then book two, then book four and a half, then three, then four, then five, then seven, and then six. Fair enough. So I shook up my rankings quite a bit um, after after thinking about this. And a lot of this has to do with how the books I remember in my mind. So we've been doing this for what, two years? A little more than two years. Yeah, now. two years that we've gone through these, these books. And I have uh, book four and a half is number one. Mm -hmm. Book two is two. And then book four. And when I think of book four, I prime, I'm primarily thinking book four as the mages section, not the framing device, as number three. Right. And I have moved book one, which had long been at the bottom of my list, Jay. You'll be happy to know that I've moved it up to fourth place on my list. And that's because I distinctly remember so many of those scenes, and I think they're pretty iconic. And I think that, in my mind, that is probably the vision of... Midworld and Roland that I have and that sticks with me most absolutely is a lot of a lot of what's in book one. Um, having said that, I still don't think overall it's a great book compared to the other ones I just mentioned. Um, and then I put five, seven, and six next, and then I know this will be a disappointment to at least somebody that you and I know, Jay. But I've put book three as the last on my list. Yeah, was a I don't distinctly remember much of what happens in that book and what i do distinctly remember i'm not a fan of so uh what you don't like shardic you know to tell you the truth i forgot that that was in the book until you just mentioned it right now ah. <laughs> mostly what i think of in that book is blaine it not ending lud lud which just sort of seems out of place and some other things so and river crossing i don't know i think what's interesting about my list is that there is the potential that my list would change over time and as I reread books or as I rethought about the books, but that's where I stand today. Well, one of the reasons why book one remains at the top of my list is because of some of the things you just said. It is so full of iconic moments and it paints this incredibly vibrant picture of Roland and the world in which he exists that I don't think any of the other books live up to in terms of that element. It, sure, King expands on the world. He adds to the mythology. He introduces the cuckoo language. Um, but it's that post-apocalyptic Western frontier, uh, you know, Sheb's Cantina kind of thing that is really what I think of as 
so much of what this book is about. And it's because Roland knows this type of place and knows how to work this type of town and deal with these type of people that it all clicks together. And everything else seems just like an outgrowth. And some of it works and some of it doesn't. But that's why I I could reread book one over and over. And every time I read it, I connect to more things and more deeply to other parts of the story because of the circular nature and because of King's edits. He even he tightens that even further so that it if you were to go back and reread book one now after going through the whole series carefully and thoughtfully like we have, I bet you would like it even more. I don't know. And and I also shook up my overall rankings. I didn't just slot seven in where I thought it fit. I moved uh, book four and a half up and I moved three up and I moved uh, four and five down. Um, I enjoy all these books to varying degrees. Um, there are none that I outright dislike, but I think, you know, six is, is the least good of the books to put it gently. Mm. And it just has too many problems. Book seven has a lot of problems too, but it has a lot of other things that are really good. And it is the end of the story and gives us that. So I, I think for those reasons, it is it is better than book six, but I don't think it's better than any of the others. All right. So having said all that about sort of where our books rank in the series, Jay, I'm sure a lot of people are saying, well, what comes next? You guys are done with the series. Is this the end of the podcast? The answer is no, this is not the end of the podcast. We'll be restarting with episode one. <laughs> That's a little dark tower joke there for you guys. Uh, yeah, deep cuts, deep cuts. Uh, no, but uh, next episode, we're going to do a series wrap-up. Um, we've already sort of alluded to it a little bit in this episode that there are things we can talk about now that we know what happens and how we, we've gotten to the end. And, you know, there's those odd subtitles at the beginning of each book, and they make a little bit more sense now that we know that resumption is one of them. And what does that mean? And so mm -hmm. we can talk about that. We could talk about the series as a whole um, and just what we think it all means. Does it all work? What do we like about it? What don't we like about it? How is this magnum opus that King created going to be remembered by us and future readers? And where does it stand as a whole? So that'll be our next episode. The following episode, we're hoping to get your thoughts on the series. What do you think? Do you totally disagree with us on what we've been saying? Are our rankings shite that shouldn't be listened to at all? Um, <laughs> where do you think these books end up? What do you like about them? What don't you like about them? What do you think this all means? So we're hoping to get your thoughts on that as well as any other questions or mailbag type things that you want to send to us. And then we are going to start tackling some Dark Tower adjacent writings. And we will start with The Little Sisters of Alluria, which is somewhat of a prequel story of Roland. It happens before he gets to the desert at the beginning of book one, correct, Jay? That's right. It means it's outside the loop. Ooh, interesting stuff. So The Little Sisters of Alluria can be found in Everything's Eventual. So you guys mm -hmm. can look that up there and that'll be in one, two, three episodes from now. So look forward to that. And we will be doing other books and stories, as I've said. So, and we'll give you guys a good heads up on what's coming so you can read along with us. We look forward to continuing this journey of Two Guys to the Dark Tower game. Right. And we'll also be putting out information on along the same lines on the social media. Excellent. And hopefully you guys are enjoying this. We recently got a new five-star review on iTunes from Craw PDX. He says, after only one episode, I can tell I'll be enjoying all of these podcasts. If you're a King fan and love to have discussions about the Dark Tower, you'll love this podcast. Great banter between the hosts and a great way to enjoy the details of King's novels. Um, I know you're not going to hear this for another 53 episodes if you wrote that after listening to the first one. <laughs> but thank you very much for that review. I'd like to think that we've gotten better since that first episode. Jay, what do you think? I think we're better than the first episode for yes. sure. And we're much better at faking the banter now because we liked each other back then. No, it's just a, a grind. <laughs> it's a grind. It's a job. Jay moved across <laughs> the country so he wouldn't have to be, talk to me face to face. We do it for you, the listeners. <laughs> we know you can't get enough of this wonderful Dark Tower content. Um, we also got a great email from Roy Dallas, who's been a fantastic listener over the span of this show. And um, I'm not going to get into all the details, 
But one of the things that I liked about Roy's piece and that Jay and I actually have done a little bit of is um, he says, I think it would be good to ask listeners on what alternative endings they would suggest. Um, and I think that that would be a pretty good. Is what the ending that King gave us, is that what you were expecting? And what would you have liked to have seen different? I know we're heading a little bit into the realm of fanfic, but uh, it might be interesting to put it into the into the guise of like, what do you think worked? What do you think didn't work? Is where King's going the natural conclusion that you thought was going to happen? Or uh, were you totally caught off guard and felt, hey, wait a minute, that shouldn't have happened? Roland should have died and Eddie should have made it to the tower. Who knows? Uh, but we'd love to hear from you. And I will uh, we'll, we'll share some we'll share some of Roy's in that upcoming mailbag episode. All right. Well, thank you for sticking around for this giant size episode of the series. We really appreciate it. And that's going to be all for this episode of the Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. And please, if you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us for a special episode as we cover the Dark Tower series as a whole, with thoughts on the major themes, connections across books, and our overall impressions of the series. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. <laughs>